Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. I was a part of Navy SEAL team for as long as I remember. Still, when it comes to my crazy missions, I have one to share. So the mission had taken us deep into the hostile territory where danger lurked in every shadow. Our objective was clear. Rescue a kidnapped scientist from an abandoned facility with a grim history. Little did we know, the labyrinthine corridors of this place held not only human threats, but a supernatural presence eager to ensnare us in its dark clutches. As we navigated through the decrepit halls, the air thick with tension, the stench of abandonment clung to every corner. Our footsteps echoed through the desolate facility, a haunting symphony of our uncertainty. The scientist's life depended on our success, but something far more sinister awaited us in the depths. It was in the bowels of this forsaken facility that we encountered the unknown predator. About seven feet tall, its muscular frame and large head with long wild hair gave it an otherworldly appearance. Yellow eyes, almost glowing in the dark, stared at us with an unsettling curiosity. It stood there, unmoving, as if assessing us. We cautiously continued our mission, keeping a watchful eye on the mysterious creature. It didn't seem aggressive, but an eerie tension hung in the air. Then, without warning, it attacked. The battle erupted in chaos, the creature moving with an uncanny speed and strength. 
Its sharp teeth flashed in the dim light as it lunged at us, catching us off guard. Our training kicked in, and we fought fiercely for our lives against this supernatural adversary. Bullets pierced the air, and the creature's roars echoed through the labyrinth. It was a battle of survival against both the paranormal and the physical, each member of the team pushing themselves to the limits. In the end, we managed to overcome the creature, but the victory was short-lived. As we called for extraction, our relief turned to dread. Through the facility's shattered windows, we saw an approaching enemy army, their silhouettes dark against the moonlit horizon. There was no time to celebrate our triumph over the thing. A greater threat loomed. Swiftly, we made the decision to retreat, leaving the haunted facility behind. We slipped away into the night, shadows merging with shadows, and the encounter with the unknown predator became a secret etched into the memories of the silent warriors. We never spoke of it again, and the story of that night remained buried in the classified pages of our missions, a chilling chapter in the unsung stories of the Navy SEALs. I always try to be on high alert, but this is not only because I'm often in the woods, but then I'm also often by myself. And people are known to do some pretty dumb things out here. I want to be out here to keep them safe. For the most part, this is routine. People, though, for the most part, are generally well-behaved when they're out camping, but sometimes things can get weird. On this occasion, it started off as normal enough. I was by myself patrolling the campsite during the night, not really expecting anything to happen. I was looking up at the sky and I saw something that caught my attention, but whatever it was was moving along the tree line. I didn't think much of it at first. I assumed it was maybe some sort of animal or bird, but as I watched it became clear that it wasn't an animal at all. This was some sort of hideous creature, probably not an animal I've ever seen before. It was tall and gaunt, long arms and a very thin frame. I could make out some sort of hair, but it was too dark to determine this thing's color. It had a long snout like that of a wolf or a dog, eyes that glowed dimly green. Its legs were incredibly long, and so the stride was almost comical as it walked away. I was terrified beyond belief by its sight, but I didn't want to show myself until it came closer. Even though this thing seemed to be headed towards the campsite, I couldn't leave everybody at my site vulnerable. I waited until about ten feet from the camp before I stood up from my hiding place, firing a shot into the air. It stopped dead in its tracks as if it were confused as to what I was doing. I think it also realized there were humans at this campsite now, and we were all very vulnerable. It paused for a moment before it turned and ran back the way it came, towards the tree line. I fired another shot, but this one missed. I was too panicked to aim properly, and I got away with whatever mischief it had in mind. I woke up the rest of the campers, told them what had happened. I only saw it for a few seconds, but it's burned into my memory like a brand. That thing whatever I shot at was pure evil. I never went out patrolling alone at night ever again after this. I'm a 16-year-old dude, and this happened a few weeks ago. I'm fairly chill, and I just live with my grandfather on the east side of Kentucky, barely above the Tennessee line. I'm a big guy, and typically I don't do anything particularly bad. I don't smoke, I don't dip, I don't even drink. To be clear, my grandfather is 76 and has just about beaten some type of leukemia. I'm a welding nerd also. It's the thing I enjoy most at school. Sometimes, when I can't sleep or I wake up in the middle of the night, I put on some clothes and go outside to my shed. My shed is really a spare two-car garage with metalworking equipment inside. I find the sound of the arcs pleasing to my ear while I'm tired and it can help me ease my mind, as I'm a nervous person to begin with. Now, if you're not familiar with eastern Kentucky, it's like a bowl, mountains surround you, 360 and thing like coyotes and snakes are common to see rummaging about at night. 
They don't really scare me because the path to my shed is well lit and concrete. I have a few windows in the building. All but two were broken out from stupid shit. I did as a little kid. The inside of the shop is actually brighter. Then my bedroom. There's plenty of light, so I turned my ventilation on, set up my welder, and started welding on some scrap metal to practice the three-fat position. I gave vertical welding with the small process. I do this a lot, and no one really minds, as my ventilation system is rather quiet, and you'd have the hearing of a bat to notice it in another house. I'm sat there in my metal stool, and something is wrong. I'm a pretty talented welder by nature. It comes as natural to me as breathing, so when my welds looked shaky and there was spatter everywhere, I knew something was wrong. My welder was set right, so I hadn't bumped it with my knee when welding. I heard something. Like a cow bell, my neighbor has a cow in his yard, so I figured she got out. It happens a lot. So I looked outside and didn't see her. Anywhere. This isn't a calf. This is a nearly full-grown cow that weighs upwards of 1,200 pounds. They don't just vanish into thin air. I checked another window, and I could barely see anything. My shed may be bright, but the trees block most of that light at night. But I did see something. Now I kind of wish and hadn't seen him. It, it was deformed, weird, and long. It had fur, so I thought I was just looking at a coyote pack. But no, this thing was too big to be a coyote. Or a wolf and too skinny to be a bear. Imagine a stereotypical Bigfoot and starve him. That's what this looked like. Somehow it was more greasy and horrible than I first thought. I turned my welder off and then ran back into my house. I grabbed a flare gun and headed back outside. Looking back on this, I really don't know why I didn't grab my grandfather's rifle. I have a hunting permit and this thing is on my property. Somehow in my head shooting a flare at it was the best idea since inventing electricity. So I opened the window and shot a flare at the thing. I don't think I regret anything more than I regret that. It looked up and its face was horrifying. Like a bulldog, its face was crunched up and small, protruding out just enough to notice. And to make it all worse, it was on a big round head. It looked at me, howled a screech and ran. I guess the flare was as scary to it as it was to me. I found out that my neighbor's cow had had the bell stolen off of it and been scratched deeply in the neck, back in the legs. I told everyone about what I saw. And what worries me now is that another neighbor of mine claims to have seen it too. It took a chicken of his. In 1947, I was heavily involved with the military and I was also a pilot. I was assigned to work with an intelligence unit located right at the Pentagon. I was only 19 at the time, just out of high school. I was very idealistic, and I wanted to serve my country. I remember all the major newspapers and media outlets were talking about flying saucers. The news was all over the place about how these UFOs were appearing in the skies. Nobody was able to get them on radar, though. It was simply pandemonium, as some people thought it was the Russians. Some people thought it was Sputnik. The media spread all kinds of crazy theories that were way ahead of their time. Most people thought these flying saucer things were some kind of top-secret government project, but they weren't sure what the government was actually doing about it. It didn't help that just months later, in 1948, the USS Macon had crashed into the Pacific Ocean, and the story broke that the Navy had been flying around and apparently giant airships they also crashed, and it was never fixed, but we managed to keep it a secret for some time. In the meantime, the Pentagon told all of us that our job was to keep watching these things. They were always appearing somewhere. The stories were all over the place, but most of them were coming out of the Southwest. I remember my commanding officer telling us that if we spot one of these things, to abandon our post, do not engage. If we were in a war zone, the order was to shoot first. Ask questions later, like the recording and the transcript. It was a very stressful time. I remember your typical media outlets having a field day. 
since there was no internet, you can turn on the radio, you'd hear all kinds of wild theories and explanations about what these things could have been. I was assigned to do lots of research and analysis at the Pentagon. Most of what we were doing involved watching for saucers and checking out the military's radar systems. We were told to be on the lookout for attacks from Russia or, or any other Soviet-affiliated countries. I didn't see a flying saucer myself until 1952. It was one of the most frightening experiences that I had during my entire tenure in the military. I was in the Air Force at the time. I had only about 23 or 24 years old. I was stationed in a small base near Area 50, one in Nevada. I was still working with the same unit, but now it's much smaller. We had our own little compound on the base. That's where we constructed all of our work. The base didn't even have a name, so we called it Sphore, and that's how everybody would refer to it. At the time, we only had around six or seven people, including our commanding officer. The UFOs stopped appearing after 1952 because we apparently figured out how to catch them on radar using special technology. The media had stopped talking about them for a time, but things began to heavily escalate shortly before Vietnam. Many years later, there was another incident in 1959. A military cargo plane had crashed into a remote section of the Sierra Nevadas. The wreckage was spread out across the mountains, and we had to do all kinds of intense field work to track every piece down. The Air Force informed us that these things weren't from Earth. What was on that plane, we had to secure the scene as best as we could. I was only a first lieutenant at the time and didn't really know much about these things until we began receiving orders from Washington that we had to abandon any and all posts until we found out what these objects were. I was interrogating one of the survivors from the crash. He was the only one who knew anything. He told me he didn't remember much about where they came from, but it wasn't of this universe. He had a lot of injuries and he was banged up pretty badly. We were told by our commanding officer to bring him back to the base at four. When I got to the base, I saw that the other officers were guarding an alien body that had crashed into the ground somewhere. It looked like a huge insect, but with two arms that were attached to its torso. It had a small hidden body covered in hard chitin. It was very scary looking, but it had been dead for several hours. We didn't have to worry about it attacking us. Turns out this was a cargo plane carrying the bodies of aliens down towards Mexico. I got a chance myself to look at the body when my commanding officer told me about what the alien survivor had said. He explained that these things were very real. Whatever they were, they were definitely not from Earth origin, and the government had known about these things for a long time. Even the survivor, who I won't name, was actually the second person on record to talk about them. It made me wonder if there was a survivor from the crash I found who's willing to spill the beans, and many of us in the military at the time referred to them by the others. They were very technologically advanced, so much so they could have wiped us off the face of this planet if they'd really wanted to. We were in a cold war with them, after all. We've been sending in our transmissions into space for decades now. The signals we put out are very specific and include everything from mathematical equations to images of our solar systems. We've been doing it for a long time, so essentially telling them exactly where to find us is a part of our project. In 1965, we had a horrific incident at one of our undisclosed locations underneath Chicago. We had a secret foreign technology testing facility. Several subjects had begun to mutate including some of the workers that were exposed to hazardous chemicals. The strange thing about this incident is that there were no survivors. There were several bodies of military personnel that were found in the aftermath of this incident. We eventually pieced together what happened between some bodies and a few survivors, but it was too late to save them all. The ones that were mutated became stronger, faster, and much more resilient. They had increased their mass beyond what we could really understand. Thankfully, our cleanup crew was able to handle it all before things got too out of hand. I know it sounds terrifying, but our military was capable of handling them. 
Since the 1970s game, things changed for the worse. They were pushing for bigger, more unethical projects intermixing human DNA, advanced bioweaponry, and all sorts of experimentation really began happening. Our military technology at the time had increased exponentially as well. We were told that we would have our own alien technology within the next few years. I had started working on these few projects, but had some moral issues with some other stuff they were doing. I heard about horrific experiments on human beings, but our superiors kept telling us it had to happen for the sake of the country. We began to notice that UFOs were being sighted more frequently right around military bases, and it got to a point where most of our technology was being crushed by superior alien forces. We had this massive accident in 1979 that took a massive toll on both our military and their technology. The incident had occurred in 1979, and it was just after the Iranian Revolution, where they gained control of our embassy and capturing our people. The technology we had at the time was enough to cause some pretty bad damage, but not as much as it could have been. Of course, this was all just the beginning. They had more technology than what we were able to understand, intimidating us into surrendering whole countries to them without firing a single shot. We were literally at their mercy, not having enough firepower to really cause any damage. This, of course, all happened under the table, beyond the sight of the public eye. There are only ever a handful of people right now alive that even have knowledge of this, besides whoever decides to read this. It is the moral obligation of every single person to spread this information. The others were very much real, and this is all very true. The experiences that I've shared with you today have changed my life forever. I have so much more I can share, but I figured it's best to break these up into smaller posts. So I'm going to end this here. I'll see you in the next one. My mother and I saw a bird that followed the car up a mountain road near Maysville, West Virginia. We saw only the tail and the underside of this animal. Its wings were almost as wide as the road. This animal repeatedly flew over the hood of the car as we drove. It did not have a feathered tail. Its tail looked long and coiled up. It was dark in color. When we witnessed this, I told my mother that it looked like a prehistoric bird. This animal was much larger than a turkey turkey buzzard, owl, eagle, hawk, or any other bird of prey that I have ever seen. It had a broad, heavy body. In fact, it looked so large that it had trouble getting airborne, and it used the path of the road to get up in the air. This bird looked large enough to easily take down a dog or deer-sized animal. I cannot say that it had any man. Like features, but this was something that both myself and my mother still remember. I have to believe that other people witnessed what we saw, and I can see why they called it Mothman. This is a true story. For obvious reasons, I can see that people blow it off as untrue, but we know the truth. I know another person in Maysville that has described something similar. He explained to me he did not know what it was, but it was as big as the highway is wide. I was hunting in a forest during gun season in Michigan in the early 2000s. My spot was the far edge of a swamp. To get to it, I walked a trail that sort of cut through the middle past this huge gnarled dead tree. Its limbs curled like a dead hand reaching towards the sky. It was straight from a horror movie. This particular morning the fog was out, but not horribly thick. I reached this tree and I'm panning the flashlight looking out over the swamp. I see this talk black shadow running through the swamp. It looked like a humanoid figure and faded after a few seconds. I scream at the top of my lungs as I see this figure and then nothing. I reach my cousin, who was 100 yards away on the forest radio, and he said he never heard my scream. Last time I was away sailing, we docked for the night. Fair enough. 
It had been a long day on the open waters, and the peacefulness of the marina was a welcome change. The sun had just dipped below the horizon, casting a warm orange hue across the sky as we secured the boat and prepared to unwind. I was just chilling above deck with one of my buds aboard, the gentle lapping of the water against the hull, creating a soothing background melody. The cool breeze rustled my hair, and the scent of the salt water mingled with the faint aroma of dinner being prepared in the galley below. It was the kind of tranquil evening that made all the challenges of sailing worthwhile. And then, as if a switch had been flipped, the serenity was shattered. The water around us started rippling towards the boat, rocking it slightly. At first we exchanged puzzled glances, wondering if it was some strange phenomenon caused by the tide or a passing ship. But the ripples grew stronger, more pronounced, and there was an undeniable sense of movement beneath us. My heart quickened, and I shot a bewildered look at my friend. Do you see that? I stammered, my voice tinged with a mixture of excitement and trepidation. He nodded his eyes wide with a mix of curiosity and concern. Yeah, something's not right. We gave the area a quick glance over, searching for any logical explanation. Maybe it was just an underwater current playing tricks on us. But our rationalizations were cut short when we heard a faint whispering, like a soft breeze carrying distant voices. Unease settled over us as we exchanged another glance. Our senses heightened. Without a word, we decided to go grab some snacks from the galley and return to the deck, our curiosity getting the better of us. That's when we saw them, the source of the unsettling phenomenon. Shadow figures haunting and ethereal merged from the water like wraiths. Transparent holes for eyes stared through us, their forms shifting and morphing as if they were made of smoke and mist. It was terrifying. My heart raced and my breath caught in my throat as I tried to make sense of what we were witnessing. Were these apparitions lost souls from some long-forgotten maritime tragedy? Or was there some natural explanation that had eluded us? The figures didn't move quickly. They drifted with an eerie, deliberate slowness. It was as if they were studying us just as intensely as we were studying them. My mind raced, considering whether we should attempt to communicate or retreat to the safety of the cabin. But the decision was made for us when the figures began to advance, their ghostly forms gliding over the water's surface. Panic surged through me, my instinct screaming that this was a danger beyond comprehension. Without a second thought, my friend and I bolted, practically tripping over each other in our haste to get back inside the cabin. The boat's engine roared to life and we powered away from the marina, putting distance between ourselves and the inexplicable encounter. My heart pounded in my chest as we sped through the dark waters, the night air echoing with our ragged breaths. As we finally slowed to a safer distance, we turned to look back at the marina. The shadow figures were gone, faded into the night like a twisted dream. We exchanged a shaky glance our minds struggling to process the surreal events we had just witnessed. We never found out what those shadow figures were, or if anyone else had ever experienced such a haunting encounter. But one thing was certain, that night would forever be etched into our memories, a chilling reminder that the mysteries of the sea run far deeper than we could ever fathom. One evening, my radio had kicked in with someone else reporting that they had seen the same thing I had. Something that I'll never forget. This thing that I saw scared me half to death, that's for sure. I was working by a river, and I saw a large, dark, furry thing by some trees across from where my patrol vehicle was parked. It stood as still as a tree, its arms raised slightly at its size like it was sniffing the air and stretching. It had to have been over eight feet tall, judging by where it was. Standing by a tree and built like a linebacker, wide shoulders and chest tapering down to its slender hips. I could see muscles tensing along its legs as it crouched slightly. I was startled and immediately thought of the people I'd encountered on duty before, usually drunk kids and groups of teens getting rowdy around campfires. 
But this time, this was something entirely different, something inexplicable and all alone out here in the middle of nowhere, with no backup, I didn't think. I froze in place, hoping that it had not seen me, while I studied the bushes where it was crouching, waiting for it to move again. That's when my radio started buzzing with the other rangers reporting seeing the same thing. That's when this thing took off running, full speed, into the woods. I could see along the side of it where I was standing on top of a hill overlooking the river valley. It disappeared quickly behind some trees, ran like nothing I'd ever seen before. Powerful strides, moving its legs back and forth in giant leaps, up the hills towards town. But not before stopping long enough to look straight at me without ever slowing down. It had green eyes that shone bright in the night. I was terrified from this, and I still have no way to explain what sort of animal this was. My ranking was Staff Sergeant E-6, and I was in charge of a security firewatch platoon. We handled perimeter defense on the flight line and security at the Squadron Operations Center. We also managed the old green sheet patrol on base after dark, looking for wood, be intruders. This part of my story occurred back in the 1960s. I served with the 8th Tactical Fighter Wing at the Yuban Air Base in Thailand. At the time, I was a replacement airman, fresh from the USA and not long in country. The squadron to which I was assigned had just turned over almost all of its aircraft to the 388 TFW, which took our F-4Ds, including my platoon's aircraft, and sent us back to the USA. My unit only had five F-4s left in the country, so I was not going anywhere soon. I had some time on my hands. We were on the flight line about midnight, minding our own business, when an airman came screaming out of the night, heading toward us from across the flight line. I thought he was a fire marshal or an airman on fire watch, checking to see if anybody was out by the flight line. I couldn't understand why he needed to run, though. He ran up to us and was gasping for breath. He told us that we had been on fire watch during the flight line, and he saw something out over the end of the runway, 1129. He said it was a bright reddish, a range object that came in from the west, slowly across the field to the east. It hovered for a short time above an aircraft revetment area before slowly drifting out of view to the south. He said he stood in disbelief for a few seconds until it came back out from behind some trees. He said it was this time it slowly moved toward him and hovered over Building 7357, also known as the AGA Hangar. We refueled our aircraft with JP-4, he said. It looked like a huge fireball with a greenish-bluish hue glow around it. He said he could see rivets in the object and what looked like a dome on top. It was about the size of an F-4C, which was about 53 feet long with a wingspan of 38 feet. He said the dome was about 20 feet in diameter, and it had, had some kind of windows or ports on each side. He said it had stayed there for a short time before slowly turning to the south and disappearing behind some trees. We radioed flight control about our Firewatch Airman's report, but they said they had not reported anything unusual. They told us to keep an eye out for anything suspicious, but there was nothing else until about an hour later. There was an airman on duty at the AGA hangar who had just relieved his replacement. He radioed flight control and he thought there was a small fire inside the AGA hangar. At first, they did not believe him. There were no reports of any aircraft being in the area. After about five minutes, they told him to call us for assistance. When we arrived, our Firewatch airman was already there and said that he had seen the object in question, that it was hovering over the AGE hangar when he first saw it. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. He said it came out from behind the trees and was hovering over building 7,357 like before. And he saw it for a second time. There was definitely something strange going on. We entered the hangar and saw a glow in the corners. We pulled our fire extinguishers off of our jeep and headed into the hangar. It was still too dark to make out much, but we could see a reddish-orange glow emanating. We could feel the intense heat even though we were only 50 feet away. The section chief was already in there with his extinguishers and managed to knock down the glow. The fire was coming from a 12-foot deep vent in the floor, which was shielded by a steel grate. The fire marshal went over to the hot grate, and it became red hot when he touched it. We all stood there in disbelief. We would later learn that the fire marshal had already pulled up the two great sidebars when he first saw the flames. We called flight control, and they sent coverall crews to help us with opening all the aircraft revetments to see if there were any fires in the adjacent aircraft. We found nothing that night, but it turned out to be a very eventful one for all of us. We never reported our lights in the sky sightings to anybody else that I know of. But the next morning, while eating breakfast, I informed my wife that there was a bright reddish, orange object in the sky heading toward Grand Forks, AFBI, from the west. I never saw it, but she said it was very bright and that it appeared to be a trail of some kind behind it that was warping space and time. These were her words. I don't know if the sighting had anything to do with the fire in the uh, AGE hangar that night, but I feel it is important enough to report this incident after all these years. I'm an old soldier now, retired from the U.S. Army after 20 years of active duty with two wars under my belt. I am also a former member of the U.S. Army Security Agency and was honorably discharged as an intercept operator. I would also really like to know if anybody else has had similar sightings or knew of this happening at Grand Forks during the 1960s. I hope somebody out there in the UFO community reads this and can shed some light on this very strange incident in my life. I walk at night in my rural area regularly. I've encountered black bears, coyotes, bobcats, angry deer, and everything on down, with no real concern. But the creepiest encounter was a little black pickup truck with rainbow and unicorn stickers. Bubblegum pop music blaring, and it smelled like cotton sandy when it passed me. First time it passed me, it swerved to hit me. I jumped out of the way easily. I thought nothing of it, really, just figured they were startled by seeing me at night with my reflective gear. The truck circled back and comes at me again. I saw it coming this time and grabbed my dog up just in time to jump into a ditch. I heard little girl laughter, high-pitched and maniacal. The tiny truck circled back for a third go at me, 
but by then I was hiding in my neighbor's shrubbery. I watched it slowly drive down the road, hearing giggling as it passed me. Fortunately, it kept on going, and I made it home just fine. The incident took place in November 2012. The gas station was a lonely building just off the highway and was the only service station for miles around. It was around 3 a.m., and the attendant was going about his normal duties when the power suddenly went out, plunging him into darkness. Using his phone as a makeshift light, the attendant made his way back to the backup gas generator and switched it on. The backup lighting came on, but only the parking lot and the hall to the register were lit up. The rest of the gas station remained in darkness. The attendant figured that the bad weather was probably to blame for the power outage. That was until he saw something moving at the edge of the darkness. He watched intently for several moments, eventually making out what looked to be three children riding bikes. Almost as soon as he saw them, two leaped from their bikes and made their way over to the gas station. They stopped at the doorway and stood staring at the attendant. Now a little unsettled, but still not overly concerned, he made his way to the door and opened it, asking the two children if they were okay and stating it was late for such young kids to be roaming around near the highway. One of them, a young girl, asked him if she could use his phone. As he handed her his mobile phone, her eyes met him and the attendant saw that they were solid black orbs. No, the girl snapped. I need the real one motioning to use the landline phone in the gas station itself. At this point, fear finally overtook the attendant, and he pushed the door shut and locked it in one move, shouting as he did so that the girl should go home. The children stared at the attendant through the window for a moment longer before turning around, getting on their bikes and riding off into the darkness. The following morning, the attendant told his boss of the ordeal and requested that he go through the security cameras However, they had been off due to the power outage. It is not known if the power going out was connected to the black-eyed kid's arrival or if it was just an unusual coincidence. I lived in Lac du Flambeau, Wisconsin, in August 1994. Seven of us were joyriding in my dad's car, and I was driving. It was about 10 p.m. on a summer night. We came up to a stop sign and noticed that there were what we thought were kids playing on the swing sets at the grade school, which was about half a block away. I pulled up at the school, and whoever it was was gone. I pulled up into the horseshoe drive all the way, and that's when we saw it, hovering above the tree line. I could see the outline, and the color was white. There were two white lights at each end of the wingtips. Everybody started to scream and holler. Go, 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 and then the third light lit up. Kind of. It opened almost like an eye pupil, like dilating. The light was an orange color. I floored the gas pedal, and we spun out of there quick. I didn't hear it make any noise, because we had a little boombox in the car. We were listening to Metallica, and the song Green Hell was playing, plus everybody screaming and crying. We went to my friend's house, and she told her dad about it. He grabbed a flashlight, and we went back. He went into the woods and found nothing. He went home, and we all went to a local pizza place, told other friends about it, and drew pictures of what we saw. We all saw the same thing. It was getting late, and the pizza place was closing. So I went to go start the car, and it was making a horrible noise. Like if you were to keep turning the ignition when the car was already running. Everybody took off running like it was gonna explode. My friend's brother opened the hood and unhooked the battery. Had to leave the car there and walk home. I have never been so terrified walking home alone. When I got home, my dad wasn't home, but my mom was. I told her about it, and she didn't say anything. I heard my dad come in later that night, and he was angry, telling me I better go get his car. My mom told him that we had seen something, and he didn't believe any of it. I couldn't sleep all that night. In the next few days, I heard that there were other sightings. Not in the same place, but within a few mile radius. 
I guess that I should add that the school was on a lakefront and that one of the other sightings was above a lake. I didn't have the best relationship with my uncle. It hadn't always been like this, though. I remember my childhood and how we'd spend a lot of time together. Sometime after I turned six, though, he suddenly went dark and his visits nearly ended completely. He used to come around about once every two months and then out of the blue. I was lucky to see him once every ten years. He had nearly become a distant memory when I received a phone call from him asking for me to visit him. I was going to say no, but he then dropped the bombshell that he was dying. Years of smoking had caught up to him and he didn't have much time left. He even offered to pay for my flight. My uncle lived on a ranch, far removed from other people. I think his closest neighbors lived about 20 miles away from his patch of land. He seemed to enjoy it this way, and I had wondered about it before. I would soon find out why. I knocked on the door, and it opened to reveal the smiling face of my uncle. He was far removed from the memories I had of him, just barely recognizable. But that's what ten years and cancer do to a person, I suppose. He invited me to sit down, and we exchanged a few pleasantries and general chit-chat. My uncle had brought out some snacks, which I had enjoyed as a child. I honestly didn't like them as much now that I was older, but I didn't want to say that and just thanked him. It was after an hour that he got to the meat of the matter. Now, nephew, he said. He actually used my name while talking, but I don't want to reveal it, so I'll just replace it with nephew for the sake of this, and I'll address him as simply uncle. Are you still big on the whole saving? Rainforest's thing? Oh, right. Um, yeah, I still want to help protect the environment. I've started a project to help save a type of frog within South America, and there's this big... My uncle raised up a hand. Sorry, I would love to hear all about it. I did love your stories back when you were little. You had such a vivid imagination. Honestly, though, I never thought that you'd actually embark on a journey to become a real environmentalist, but I'm glad you did. Nephew, I don't have a lot of time left, and so I want to get straight to the point. He took a deep breath. Do you believe in monsters? Monsters? I asked, confused. Yes, my uncle said. Monsters. They exist. You might not believe in them now, but you will once this is over. I don't understand, I said. Let me ask you another question. Do you believe that every species on Earth has a right to be protected? He asked. Well, yeah, I said. And if you had the power to save one of them, would you? Yeah, I would, I said. My uncle relaxed a little. He then got up to get his rifle. Do you know how to use one of these? Yeah. Dad taught me, but I've never actually used one of them in a dangerous situation before, I professed. You probably won't need it, but take it anyway, he said. I'll explain what this is about, but I need you to come with me somewhere. We then spent 15 minutes hauling supplies to the back of his truck. All in all, it was probably enough to last someone several months and I was honestly confused as to why my uncle would need that much. While he drove me to our destination, he started talking again. Do you believe in Bigfoot? Sasquatches? He asked. Bigfoot? I said and laughed. The town where I grew up had had a Bigfoot sighting ten years ago. It wasn't all too famous outside of it, though. And I doubt anyone outside of our town has even heard of it. Well, you see, when you think of stories of ape, Men are the like, my uncle continued. You'll know that the Native Americans also had similar stories of seeing such creatures. That seems to tell me that they probably are real. But that leads to another question, of course. Why haven't we ever found one? It's said that at one point the population of humans on Earth was only 10,000, but we bounced back from that. If we assume that there are even one-tenth that amount of them around, only a thousand, we should still have found traces of them. Dead bodies. Excreta. There should be videos of them migrating for food. But there aren't any. And all you can find is very bad grainy footage occasionally. So they're not real then. I said with a shrug. My uncle shook his head. 
There's an easy answer to that paradox. The reason we haven't found them was that they were hunted to near extinction. By people like me, I was waiting for the laugh, indicating that this was a joke, but it never came. It was after my stint in the Army. I was looking for work, and I was an experienced hunter to boot, and so some suits from the feds came round to try and recruit me. They said that I had to hunt a kind of ape, and I needed the cash at the time, so I agreed, my uncle said. I never really found out why it was that the government wanted them gone, my uncle said. Some of the other hunters had their theories. Some said we were harvesting their organs. Others said that we were going to clone them to make super soldiers. Some people thought that the Bigfoot was actually more advanced than us and would threaten our position as the dominant species on this earth. I have a far simpler theory. We hunted them because we wanted their land. Bigfoot tends to be rather docile most of the time but they are also very territorial. Some people must have died at one point because of them while encroaching on their land, and the government realized that we had to wipe them all out. Of course, this isn't the 1800s, and if the public got wind of it, well, it would be bad, so the project was kept hidden. I was pretty good at it, my uncle said. I had a total of 339 confirmed kills. I never thought anything of it at first. I just thought I was hunting any other kind of animal. Until one day, I was all alone tracking two of these creatures, when one of them almost got the jump on me. I managed to kill it with a lucky shot. Thank the gods, or else I wouldn't be here today. The other one ran away, and I went after it. I was able to finish it off twenty minutes later, and I followed some of its older tracks to a small enclave in the woods. His hands began to shake a little, and I offered to drive. No, it's fine. I had never seen a child before then. A child Bigfoot that is to see. Well, a baby animal was still an animal. After all, so I raised my gun when it did something none of them had done before. It spoke. I had heard roars and growls before, but never actual words. Two syllables. Mm-hmm. It said them again, and something else, and began wailing. The way it said that, it kind of reminded me of you, nephew. He smiled fondly. I know you can't remember, but I remember holding you in my arms while you spoke your first words. You were so adorable back then. His smile vanished. It was then that what I was doing hit me. I wasn't saving humanity from some rabid animals. I was wiping out another species which was maybe as smart or even smarter than us, my uncle said. I never mentioned what happened to anyone else, but I quit some time later. I'm sorry I wasn't around more while you were growing up. I secluded myself here. I had to, he said, and then stopped. We had arrived at a small clearing. He handed me the rifle and got off the truck. There's something I haven't told you. There was a reason some of us thought that the Bigfoot was superior to us. They have a special skill, so to speak. At first, we thought they had some kind of telepathy. But no, they're able to communicate with a special type of sound wave that travels for hundreds of miles. It's at a frequency humans can't hear, but once we used special equipment, we were able to detect it. That's why it's so hard to find them. Once you encounter one, that one will contact every single other one in a hundred-mile radius and tell them to run. My uncle pulled out a strange flute. You know what a dog whistle is, right? This is kind of the same thing. Up till then, it had occurred to me that this might have been some sort of elaborate joke. My uncle wasn't really a prankster, but maybe he had wanted to make me laugh one last time or something. That, or maybe the medications, were interfering with his reasoning ability. He played something on the flute, and nothing happened for ten minutes, even though my neck kept turning at the slightest sound made by the forest. Every twig snapping or bird chirping nearly made me jump as the suspense dialed up to a crescendo when I finally told myself to relax and take a deep breath. And then I knew that my uncle was perfectly sane and hadn't been telling me some weird story. 
Out of the corner of my eyes, I saw a dark figure emerge. Now, you've probably seen some footage or drawings of Bigfoot. I'll say that many of them are reasonably accurate. You're looking at something about eight feet tall, which is very ape-like. That is to say, except for the face. That face was surprisingly human. And it made me wonder how it was that my uncle kept killing them without a bit of remorse for so many years. It had a strange way of walking and paused after taking two steps. It pointed a finger at me. Who? Is? He? The words were deeper than any other voice I'd heard and a little garbled, but the meaning was clear enough. He's my nephew, my uncle said. He then pointed to his truck. I got you all I need, but I'm dying. I won't be around for long. He then turned to me. I, I hope he'll keep taking care of you, but my time here is up. He began to cry, something I'd never thought he'd do. If you want to kill me, you can do it now. A chill went down my spine. I was the one who killed your parents. I think you know that my uncle continued. You might as well take me out of my misery now. The thing raised a hairy fist and I raised the rifle reflexively, but my uncle put up a hand to stop me. This is what I want. I hesitated, and that was a fatal mistake. Even if I wanted to, there was no way I would react it in time to save my uncle. But no killing blow came. Instead, the thing pointed a finger at my uncle and said, Ma, ma, tears flowed down my uncle's face like a faucet. After all this time, I helped my uncle, who was sobbing so it was really me doing all the work, unload the supplies, and we drove off. What was that about? I asked him angrily, Were you really going to let it kill you? It's a he, my uncle corrected, and I have done so much wrong, nephew, throughout my life. Raising him was just a partial atonement for my sins. I know it isn't enough. I can't even walk into a church and confess my sins to anyone. He then paused. I'm sorry, though. I didn't want to drag you into this, but someone needs to keep supplying him with food. I keep him hidden, but if he goes out to forage for food, he'll be found someday, and this place isn't big enough for him to live off the land. Why this rifle then? I asked, because my uncle said. I was worried that he might try to kill you as revenge instead of me. After all, I killed some of his family. He might consider that to be fair. But I wouldn't let him hurt you. Of course, I was completely wrong. I was thinking about what I would have done. But he isn't like me. He's much better and bigger of a person than I am. It was then that I realized what my uncle had been talking about earlier. The monsters he spoke of. He wasn't talking about the Bigfoot I had just seen. He was talking about humans. Part of it must have been about himself. Most of it must have been about the other people who had organized the hunt for these creatures who still walk the earth freely with no guilt in their souls. So what do I have to do? I asked. My uncle's eyes lit up a bit. Will you do it? Will you take care of him for me? My uncle said that he would leave his investments. Totaling $12 million, hunting Bigfoot apparently paid very well, as well as the ranch. It would be more than enough for me to keep the place running. I could even hire some helpers to work on the ranch, though he advised against it as some of them might talk. My uncle died three months later. I was with him when he passed away, as he couldn't confess his darkest sin to the pastor he confessed it to me instead. For the last four years, I've been running this place mostly smoothly. Something strange did happen the last time I went to supply him. Behind him, I saw two shadows. One was a bit shorter than him, and one was even shorter than me. It appeared that he had found himself a partner and even a child. Where had they come from? Most likely, he had signaled to her using the special call he had. The two of us didn't talk too much, but I did tell him I was happy for him. He smiled back and said, Thank you, brother, for many of you who enjoy hunting for Bigfoots, not in the sense that my uncle did. Of course, I just mean people who like searching for signs of Bigfoot. I have a message to pass on to you all. Don't bother. You'll never find them. They know to hide from humans. Many, if not all, of the settings you hear about are just hoaxes. I even have the suspicion that many of the hoaxes are done by the government to discredit true sightings. But I know that I can't solve this problem alone. 
if people don't know what's happening, the few remaining ones will be killed. And I can't save a species like this. I need to get the word out to let the public know what the government's been doing behind your back, and we can't let them continue. I've devoted lots of time to saving these creatures, but I can't do it by myself. Already I know many of you will dismiss this as a tall tale, but for those of you who do believe, remember, the best thing you can do for these creatures is simple. Leave them alone. In case you do find one or think you saw one in the area, maybe you could leave something to eat for them, but it's doubtful that they'll come back to that area. After all, even I wouldn't trust humans after what they've gone through. I'm not sure if this is the appropriate time to come forward with this story, seeing that the recent events in Japan are still fresh in everyone's memory. I have been a follower of your podcast. Naturally, your podcast was the one I thought of first when this incident happened, and I decided to write in and tell you what happened that night in early February. I was in Japan on business and had emailed a lifelong friend who was living in Japan and teaching English at a local school. He had insisted on my staying with him for the duration of my stay, saying it would help save me money and make my expense report look better when I turned it in. My friend, I will call him Tim for the sake of his reputation and career, was a lifelong bachelor and had a fairly large apartment, all to himself and his cat. After several days of day, long meetings and group seminars, we decided to go out to get a bite to eat and take in the town. After a fairly large meal and hopping from one night spot to another, we decided to go toward the ocean and check out the moonlight reflecting off the waves. My friend stated that he wanted to check on a biology station that some of his graduate students had set up near a large power plant. As we approached the plant from the west, we walked along some paths and came to a simple metal box bolted into the ground. From this box there were a myriad of weather vans and other meteorological devices. My friend stated the school science class students had a theory that just like the water being used and discharged by the power plant was warmed by the production of electricity, the air around the plant was also being warmed and thus affecting weather and tidal patterns in the surrounding ecosystem. It all sounded too complex and in my slightly tipsy and tired state was only able to grasp the bare bones of the complex theory he laid out. He finished up and changed the subject to something more jovial when all of a sudden we heard a loud and distinct whoosh. At first my mind thought it might be the sound of the distant waves crashing ashore when we heard it again, followed by an ear-pitching screech that shook me down to the bone and made the hairs on the back of my neck stand on end. We looked around for the cause of the noise when we heard the sound again. The best way I can describe it is a city bus break when they are in need of service, loud and ear, splitting. We both continued to look around when my friend's attention was drawn toward the plant by another nearby couple. A younger couple out for a walk were staring toward the plant, arms outstretched and the obvious fear in their voice showing itself. I looked toward the plant and against the lights of the plant. I thought I saw a figure silhouetted against the moonlit sky. The figure was large and black from the distance. I was at it looked to be sitting on top of one of the squared-shaped buildings. It sat there for about five seconds, then it unfurled a large set of what I could only describe as large black wings. The only reference I can compare them to is from the old John Travolta movie, Michael, where the main character unfurls his wings and spreads them out to their full length. To say that this creature was large was an understatement. The creature then took flight and circled the plant at least four or five times. Some circuits he took at a fast pace. Some he seemed to slow down. All the while he kept his attention on the row of square-shaped buildings that I later found out housed the reactors. The creature then came toward us, flying at least 25, 30 feet off the ground. The younger couple who had noticed the creature first were now screaming and cowering. The man shielding the woman while shielding his head with a jacket. My friend and I looked in awe as this creature flew over us. That's when I noticed the two large red eyes. 
They seemed to glow from within and with a blood-red hue. They were unblinking in the three, four seconds we saw them. We knew they were looking straight at us. We knew this creature knew we could see it, and it made no attempt to disguise itself. The sick, intense, and overwhelming feeling of dread came over us. A feeling that we shouldn't be there was, to say the least, overwhelming. As quickly as it came, it flew away, back toward the town, eventually melting into the black night sky. And as it flew away from us, a loud whoosh was heard again, and then, silent. This lasted a second or two before I heard the sound of a shudder and turned to see my friend trying to take pictures with his cell phone. But all he got was a dark nighttime sky. We went straight home, and my friend bolted the door and drew all the blinds. He was shaking and saying that he could not believe what he saw. Could it have been a large, unknown species of bird? He kept mumbling to himself until I was able to calm him down and get him to relax and talk about what we had seen. Eventually, we both agreed that it must have been some sort of large bird, or maybe an optical illusion caused by the lights given off by the plant on a regular, known species of bird. We talked about it late into the night till we both fell asleep on the couches and awoke the next morning to stiff necks and backs. My friend and I spent the last two days out and about and enjoying each other's company till he drove me to the airport and we bid each other farewell and I came home. We spoke about it only once more in an email about a week before he was due to come to the U.S. for his sister's wedding. When I brought it up at the wedding rehearsal dinner, he was convinced that it had been an optical illusion. That was until the day before the wedding when he woke me out of a deep sleep with a frantic phone call telling me to turn on the TV. There came the images of the devastation of the Japanese earthquake and the near total destruction of the city of the town of Okuma, where my friend was living and working. On the day of the wedding, the news came of the explosions at the local nuclear power plant, and as CNN broadcast the report, we were both aghast at the same power plant where we had seen the strange bird-like object not being shown on the television set. The Fukushima Daiichi was the exact same plant we had seen the strange bird-like creature circling. Was it pure coincidence, or was it the mythical moth? man doing his strange work of predicting disasters? I may never know and may go to the grave wondering that, but one thing is certain for sure. I don't think that either of us is going to forget this event, no matter how long we live.